Hey folks, it's Mike Casey here, and you're listening to Digging Those Ditches, the weekly ramblings of an Irish archaeologist. Hey folks, and welcome to this week's Digging Those Ditches. Hope you're all doing good. So I'm going to start off the show today with a little quote, and that's from... Irish comedian Tommy Tiernan. So Tommy once said, and this may not be the exact quote, but he once said that the Irish are good at, at two things. We're good at building stuff and fighting other people's wars. Now, I got a great laugh out of it because it's true and the delivery by Tommy is, you know, really brought it home to me. Now, I don't believe it's the o- you know, it's only these two things that, you know, I believe there's more levels to the Irish than just just these two things. But there there's no denying that we have uh, been a common feature on the construction sites and the battlefields of the world. When uh, when it comes to construction, there there's more than just you know the story of Irish immigration and the and uh, finding work in other countries. Uh, Ireland has a strong building tradition dating back thousands of years. You know to use that cliche uh, statement of you know Newgrange was built before the pyramids. You know I I feel it's necessary to throw that in because as I say we have a long heritage of of building and construction in Ireland, like like hundreds of civilizations and hundreds of traditions, you know. But it's important to remember that uh, we have been building on this this island for for thousands of years now. So uh, yeah, as I said, every every country builds structures, but Ireland uh, it does have a strong construction heritage, and we have in particular, you know, we have a fame for our ecclesiastical structures. And uh, even the humble Irish cottage, you know, is, it's a testament to the skill of our builders. Uh, you know, it was it was necessary for these structures to be strong and sturdy, especially due to the, you know, the often erratic climate that we have here in this country. And, you know, here again, I am referencing the, the weather situation. Uh, in addition, you know, sometimes as, as apparently simple as a, a dry stone wall can be, they're an ex- excellent example of, of Irish construction. You know, the walls of Western Ireland appear almost like a, an intricate art piece when you when you consider the, the skill and the planning that was involved in, in creating this patchwork of of field systems in in the west of, of the country. When it comes to fighting then on the other hand, or you know, fighting other people's war, again it's this isn't just unique to Ireland, but it's certainly a common occurrence throughout our history. You know, I talked before about the two hundred plus uh, force of Irishmen who fought in the First World War, and you know there were colonial troops uh, fighting for the the British and their empire. Uh, you know we've Irish mercenaries and in, in armies of early modern Europe to, uh, you know to Irishmen being drafted into the U.S. forces in Vietnam, and then there's lesser known but you know more point proving examples: men who served in the Boer War uh, in South Africa on the Boer side. Uh, as I mentioned previously, Irishmen caught up in in the revolutions of colonial South America, and even a, a handful of Irishmen who found their way into the ranks of the, the Waffen-SS fighting for, for Hitler's Germany. So there's, there's a rich record and much published about the Irish in other people's wars, but I think it's important not to, not to forget that though they were often men who had emigrated for work and a new life and found themselves caught up in these, in these wars, uh, many of them they wouldn't have viewed it as an other person's war because, you know, rather it was a, a war for the people that they that they were trying to be or that they were now. 
both construction and war have played a, an important role in creating the modern world and the nations with their identities and traditions that that exist in our world. And Ireland has played a, a role in both these processes throughout history. Uh, so today on the show, I'm going to look at some places and people uh, and, and things that show off these this trait of the Irish historical character. The island of Ireland was, according to earliest evidence, first inhabited by humans around 8000 BCE. Uh, Mount Sandal in County Derry is one of the earliest identified settlement sites on the island, uh, with hut sites being discovered at the location dating to at least 7000 BCE. Now these hut sites are, are some of the earliest forms of construction on the island. And these sites uh, from this period are mostly coastal, uh, as it's believed uh, by many that Ireland's earliest settlers were, were seafaring people whose societies were, were heavily tied to the sea. As the world entered, or in this case Europe in particular, entered what uh, we call the Neolithic or the New Stone Age, the societies on the island began to build on a grander scale. The obvious examples of this construction boom in the Neolithic period between 4000 and 2500 BCE uh, are seen in the construction of large megalithic structures like Newgrange, Nowth and Douth in particular, uh, in what is known as the, the Bruna Boyne complex. Uh, these massive megalithic passage tombs uh, with huge stone building materials and complex alignments to astronomical movements, they show a rich, a rich base of knowledge for structure, you know, structure and design. And they also show that we had the skills necessary for the construction process of these, these types of buildings. In addition, Ireland in this period saw the construction of wedge and portal tombs, uh, Pon in the Burn, County Clare being one of the most well-known examples of the latter. Uh, alongside these visually you know, striking monuments, uh, it's important to take account of things like uh, the cage of field system in County Mayo. Now, this system of field boundaries where plots of land are divided up by the construction of dry stone walls uh, were in use by at least 3,500 BCE and they remained in use for several centuries. Uh, the system was discovered beneath peatland and it's one of the oldest field systems discovered in the world. Uh, these sites and monuments, they show that you know, Ireland's earliest people uh, had already began learning and, and uh, carrying out large-scale types of construction and they were very good at it too. Moving into the Bronze Age and the Iron Age, uh, this tradition of large megalithic structures became less evident. We see smaller stone structures were built and those from the Neolithic period continued in use. Uh, this cessation of construction in the Bronze Age in particular may have been caused by a number of societal or environmental difficulties, but I don't want to digress into that. Um, then coming into the Iron Age, Many of these places, as I said, continued in use and uh, they continued to build similar types of structures. But you also seen the construction of ring forts and hill forts, which appear to be the, you know, the predominant type of structure from this period. Now, I want to move on quickly and not get caught up in an entire analysis of uh, of the building in the building types and construction types in uh, prehistoric Ireland. Uh, I, don't, I don't have the time and I also I don't have the specific knowledge of construction in prehistoric Ireland. But, you know, I've talked a little just to give you a picture of Ireland that shows that we had a strong con construction tradition in, in the prehistoric period. 
Now, as my specific subject today in connection with the theme of the Irish being good at building stuff, I want to take a few moments to to look at uh, what is almost a, a uniquely Irish form of structure, uh, and that's the round tower. Now, round towers are almost exclusive to Ireland. Uh, there are two examples in Scotland, and there's one on the Isle of Man. Uh, however, the large distribution in Ireland uh, shows, you know, that we can we, we can assume that the tradition uh, originated in Ireland, and their appearance in these places is, are as a result of the the close ties between Ireland, Scotland, and the islands that are dotted in and around um, the Irish mainland. So a round tower is a stone tower with a circular plan. The structure of a round tower consisted of a solid masonry base uh, with the tower entrance placed two or three metres above the ground level. The masonry involved in their construction varied from uncut stone to to later more shaped stone structures uh, and it was dependent normally on the time period uh, that the tower was built with uh, a lot of the early examples being being far more basic but it also it, it would have come down to you know the scale of local craftsmen and also you know the the stone building material that was was available um there are 120 examples of round towers in ireland and about 18 or 18 to 30 of these are in, are in very good condition dating to the 9th to the 12th century the foundations for round towers are fairly minimal uh, the structural integrity is provided by the solid base uh, of stone uh, hence the raised doorway so, as I said, you have this two or three metres of, of solid masonry at the base, which gives it that structural integrity rather than, than building a deep foundation. Uh, the doorways would have been reached by a ladder uh, as well as wooden steps. You know, there's evidence of post holes that were discovered in the 90s. They show that there would have been permanent entrance steps uh, at many of the places where round towers were built. Internally, these towers were they would have contained a number of, of floors, uh, predominantly made of wood and these floors would have been reached again by ladders or there would have been internal staircases uh, the roofs of round towers would have been primarily conical in shape uh, you know stone kind of cone cappings uh, though you know many of them now have almost like battlements and these would uh, appear to be later additions perhaps showing the, the towers later reuse as watchtowers now maybe I'm off in that estimation but it's a conclusion I've come to uh, given what I've read and what I've been told and learned that you know these were later additions these battlements structurally the round towers of Ireland are, are, are very sound you know they have a long life uh, their existence and their appearance on the landscape uh, today is testament to that uh, with you know a large section at the tower's base uh, it makes it makes them you know that structural integrity makes it easy for them to cope with uh, with the Irish weather conditions now the true purpose of round towers is it's still debated you know they're normally located at monastic and church sites and this has led to the theories that they were bell towers or you know places of refuge and given the riches of ecclesiastical sites in ireland in this period um you know that would have made sense you know they would have been uh, targets for raiding and pillaging you know i.e the vikings in particular uh on other ideas that are out there are you know first of all that they could have been used as boats that they were bell towers and a place of refuge but also uh, as status symbols, you know, because a lot of these monasteries would have been uh, would have been funded by by local local uh, kings and local lords. Uh, lords isn't really the right word to use there, excuse me. But yeah, by local kings and uh, local princes would have funded and uh, patronized these ecclesiastical sites. So having a round tower on it would have been a 
a good symbol of your wealth and your power. Also, as watchtowers is a is another another example. And you know these these theories are they're they're just as highly probable as the others. Uh, round towers they're they're fascinating structures. And aside from the megalithic monuments and Dunangusa on the Isle Islands, uh, they're they're one of the only significant stone buildings uh, in in the sense of you know an individual building uh, the, to appear in pre-Norman Ireland. There are fantastic examples uh, that you can still see all over the country, uh, particularly in Glendalough, uh, Clonmacnoise, Kilkenny, and the largest accessible one is in Kildare Town, which stands at 105 feet. Their construction, as I said, it's, it's almost unique to Ireland, and it shows that the strong tradition of construction existed in Ireland, that the, and that there were you know, a high level of knowledge was necessary to carry out these, these more intricate, and while them, you know, not necessarily as as labor intensive as the earlier megalithic structures, um, it shows, as I said, that there was a high level of learning and and skill uh, present in Ireland at the time. I decided to take a look at the structure of round towers because of its of its uniqueness to Ireland, but this association between Ireland and construction has been it's been ever present. Our our association in the present day comes from our more recent examples. Uh, most notably our involvement in, in construction in the UK and the United States in particular. Uh, you know, there's a specific stereotype of the Irish, as, uh, especially in America, as people involved in construction. Uh, that famous photo of, uh, of the boys having, having lunch 69 floors up, you know, sitting on a, on a girder of a, of a skyscraper that's under construction. Uh, at least two of those have been identified as Irishmen. So it shows... Uh, that we, we pop up wherever these sort of large-scale construction uh, sites are and wherever there's, wherever there's work to be found, you know, that there's normally an Irish lad there. Um, so we are a people with a strong construction and building background, and it, it, doesn't make, it doesn't make us unique by any means, but it does say something for us that we have, we have both, an, you know, an ancient megalithic tradition on what could be sometimes called this, you know, an isolated island. And we have our own Irish-specific types of structures. And that stereotype exists of our involvement in the post-colonial development of the US in particular. So we are, as, as Tommy Searden said, you know, we are good at building stuff. For our talk on Ireland's ability and common appearance in fighting other people's wars uh, I can think of no better example than the American Civil War and the stories of two men in particular who fought in it uh, Thomas Maher on the side of the Union and Patrick Claiborne who served in the Confederate forces of the South uh, firstly just a, a quick brief on the American Civil War and I promise this won't be long uh, the American Civil War began in 1861 and lasted until 1865 uh, with over a million people killed so it, w it was quite a violent and, and bloody civil war. Uh, there were many reasons for the start of the civil war. You know, the, the abolition of slavery was, was seen as one of the key factors. But more so than that, you know, there were huge cultural differences between uh, the, the, the states in, in the north of uh, the American Union and those in the south. You know, you had these, uh, these city dwellers in the north, you know, who... Uh, were far more capitalist and economic based whereas in the south it was all about these large farms and plantations uh, and also another big factor was 
was a, a disagreements over uh, state rights and, and the federal rights of the government. You know, America is literally a, a collection of states that are united under one federal government. And a lot of these southern states didn't appreciate the fact that, that federal, uh, federal government rules uh, superseded these, these state laws and these state rules. And uh, because of that, you know, they, they were kind of a, a little aggrieved when, especially the fact that uh, a lot of the northern states, you know, had a more prevalent role in, in the running of the American state. And as a result, as I said, the, the difficulties between state and federal rights was, was probably the key factor, really, in the, in the outbreak of the American Civil War. Um, it's interesting to note when when we t- try to take a look at the importance of the Irish role in fighting with other in other people's wars, you know, a lot of the time, as I said, it was it was usually as mercenaries or as exiles that we ended up in these foreign armies, or or just uh, for the pure sake of adventuring. But in America, it was slightly different. Uh, American author uh, Shelby Foote, he's one of the preeminent scholars on the American Civil War. He stated this about the American Civil War. Any understanding of this nation has to be based, and I mean really based, on an understanding of the Civil War. I really believe that firmly. It defined us. The Civil War defined us for what we are, and it opened us up to being what we became, good and bad things. And it is very necessary, if you're going to understand the American character in the 20th century, to understand this enormous catastrophe of the mid-19th century. It was the crossroads of our being, and it was a hell of a crossroads. Now, this quote shows how important the American Civil War was, and the Irish in particular really played a key role. Huge amounts of Irish immigrants served in the American army, from lowly privates to to brigadier generals. And from the very beginnings of the American Civil War, now this did change slightly over time. It was seen as a white man's war, and this meant that you know, particularly the natives were stopped from from joining either army. And you also, you know, slaves were not allowed, even though slaves were later brought into the Union Army and in small amounts into the Confederate Southern Army. Um, but the fact that your, you know, Irish immigrants and European immigrants in particular, they were, they were what gave the manpower to this war, the fact that even during the middle of the American Civil War, immigration was still huge in the United States. And as I said, it was seen as a white man's war. So these these sort of uh, these people arriving were were what they wanted to put into the American army. And as a result, as I said, you know, there were hum- huge amounts of Irish uh, arriving even in the middle of the war. And most of them ended up joining uh, the Union Army in particular. Uh, the Union is actually sorry if I haven't explained it, is what the forces of, of, uh, of the North, the Northern states during the American Civil War is known as, and the South then is known as the Confederacy. So the first of the two men that I'm going to look at when I look at, as I said, Ireland's uh, appearance in other people's wars is uh, Thomas Maher. So Thomas Francis Maher was a journalist when the war broke out in 1861, and he was, he was sympathetic to the Southern calls for less interference from, from the federal government, but when the war broke out, he enlisted in the Union Army. And, you know, he enlisted he with the firm belief that the Union had to be preserved at all costs. Maher was born in Watford City in August of 1823. And he lived a hugely colourful life before he ever even arrived in America. 
He came from a wealthy merchant family and he received a good education and he was particularly noted for his oratory skills uh, from a very young age. And he was educated uh, in England for a time at a, a Jesuit college in Stronghurst in Lancashire. He was to return to Ireland in 1843 uh, and became involved in politics uh, and more precisely in the R Repeal Association movement, which was uh, a movement uh, that looked for the removal of the union between Britain and Ireland. And his public speaking skills, they made him a popular figure within this movement. By 1846, uh, the repeal movement was, it was losing momentum due to a, l a lot of internal divisions uh, on the course the movement was taking. And Maher and other young Irelanders, uh, as they're commonly known, uh, the, clique, you know, the clique that he became involved in, they were disillusioned with the, with the movement and they were also, they were being sidelined by opponents within the repeal association. Uh, this sidelining of the, the young Irelanders, as I said, they as they became commonly known, was what really radicalised them. Uh, because up to this point, you know, they agreed with the movement's uh, peaceful means for bringing about the, uh, the breaking of the Union uh, with Great Britain. In 1847, uh, Maher and a group of his, uh, his fellow young Irelanders, uh, they, were, they came to form the, uh, the Irish Confederacy, it was called. And they left for France. Uh, they were trying to go there to, to better understand the revolutionary ideals and politics of France. And, and they were hoping to garner some information. And, uh, and when they returned, in fact, uh, they, they returned with the first incarnation of the Irish tricolour, uh, which was first flown uh, by Maher and his association at a meeting in Waterford. The Young Islanders were to stage a, a rebellion of sorts in, or specifically on, July 29th of 1848 and it was a gunfight with uh, local police forces in the village of Ballingarry in County Tipperary uh, and that was the height of this rebellion. Now Maher and other members of the Young Irelanders, uh, they were arrested and they were tried for treason. Maher himself, he was uh, sentenced to transportation to Van Diemen's land, which is today Tasmania. And he was married while he was there and given the relative freedom that he was given on this isolated island, uh, you know, in the middle of the Pacific. Uh, he, he managed to escape somehow in 1852 and he made his way to New York. After arriving in America then, Maher, uh, he, he studied law and journalism. And by 1860, you know, he was, he was a quite highly regarded traveling lecturer as well as uh, publishing a couple of newspapers, uh, one of which was a, a nationalist Irish paper uh, aimed at Irish immigrants and, you know, pushing for uh, the support of the, the, the free... Irish nationalist cause back in Ireland uh, amongst American, American Irish. Uh, he also, he held the rank of a captain in the New York militia at the time too. So this is, you know, one year out from the war, he's, he's looking pretty good in his life in the United States and he, he succeeded in creating a, a, a positive and, you know, a wholesome life for himself. Uh, meanwhile, in Arkansas, Patrick Claiborne was was busy practicing law in his adopted home. Claiborne, he was born in Cork in uh, 1828, and he was the son of a doctor from an Irish middle-class family. Claiborne, too, had a, a colorful life before the American Civil War. Uh, having failed to follow his father into the world of medicine, he ended up in the British Army. Uh, he was promoted to corporal, but it seems that he disliked his time in the British Army, and 
he managed to get uh, to get himself discharged. Uh, supposedly, the influence of of family and uh, money helped him secure this. Uh, he made his way to America, and he moved around before settling in H- Helena in Arkansas. Uh, Claiborne too was involved in journalism, and he actually purchased a paper along with a, a close friend of his, uh, Thomas Heinemann. Uh, so it's a nice parallel there with Maher. Claiborne and Heinemann were also, uh, they were involved in a, in a notable gunfight where Claiborne was shot, uh, as well as actually shooting one of the men who had attacked him. Uh, neither him nor Heinemann was actually was charged with any wrongdoing. So by 1860, uh, a year before the war, uh, Claiborne was a lawyer and he was working in Arkansas and he too had built himself a comfortable and, and prosperous life in the US. On April 12th of 1861, the Confederate forces in South Carolina, under the command of General PGT Beauregard, fired on the Union-held fort uh, called Fort Sumner. Now this was what kicked off the Civil War, with 11 states in total having seceded from the Union and formed the Confederate States of America. Patrick Claiborne began his service in the war as a colonel in the 15th Arkansas Infantry Regiment, while Maher took control of an Irish company of the New York Volunteers within the 69th New York Regiment. Maher's oratory came in handy again as he managed to rally support for the Union cause among the Irish within New York. Maher and his company were to take part in the first major battle of the war, uh, the first battle of Bull Run. After this, Maher went on to recruit a brigade of Irish volunteers from New York, and he was commissioned as a brigadier general, and he was to lead them into action and into a series of battles in 1862. Claiborne, too, found himself promoted to a brigadier general in 1862, and his limited military experience, it would have been invaluable to the Confederate forces, who kind of lacked a, la- a strong officer corps, so any sort of military experience really would have led to rapid promotion. Uh, and this happened in the North as well, but particularly in the South, as I say, because of their lack of manpower and their lack of an officer corps at the start of the war. So by mid-1862, both men were Brigadier Generals on opposing sides in what I suppose you could class as the, the war for American identity if you're to follow on from Shelby Foote's quote earlier. Both Claiborne and Maher were to see a huge amount of combat during the war. Maher and his Irish brigade were present during the Peninsula Campaign, and they suffered huge casualties at the Battle of Antietam. Uh, They also fought at the Battle of Fredericksburg and Chancellorsville, uh, which were huge engagements in the American Civil War. The Irish Brigade suffered the third largest amount of casualties of any Union unit in the war. And Maher, while he was considered a decent commander, uh, he was sometimes uh, criticised for these heavy losses um, that his units sustained. And he was often held accountable for these losses. Claiborne, on the other hand, he became a hero for the Confederacy. The battles of Shiloh, Stones River, Chickamauga, as well as the campaigns of Chattanooga and Atlanta, they, they saw him become named the Stonewall of the West, uh, Stonewall being a reference to Stonewall Jackson, one of the Confederacy's finest generals who was stationed in the eastern theatre of the conflict. Claiborne had a successful run-in as well with uh, William Tecumseh Sherman, who was probably the, f- the, the Union's finest general, uh, 
up there with uh, Ulysses S. Grant. And he received direct praise from the Confederate government as a result of this action, which helped save a, a large amount of Confederate forces from being overwhelmed by Sherman's forces. Despite their similarities in life, the war was to end very differently for both these men. Uh, Maher, he resigned his commission in the army following the Battle of Chancellorsville in 1863, but this was rescinded and he was moved to the Western Theatre in 1864 and put in command of an under, an, a number of Irish units within uh, what was known as the Army of Cumberland and later the Army of Ohio. Uh, Claiborne, he took a radical step in 1863, calling for the emancipation of and the enlistment of black slaves into the Confederate Army of Tennessee. And this suggestion would see Claiborne overlooked for further promotion as, you know, it didn't have a lot of... Uh, a lot of strong advocates for it within, uh, within the South, uh, particularly in the army. Uh, now, Claiborne himself, he was never a slave owner, and most reports say that it was his love for his adopted home state and not any love for slavery uh, that had seen him enlist or any love for the protection of, of slavery. Uh, and I'm not just trying to defend him, you know, uh, retrospectively. I just, this is from what I've read and what I've, what I've heard. Claiborne was to lead his men for the final time at the Battle of Franklin uh, in Tennessee. He led his forces in an ill-fated attack in a, uh, on a real, a really strong Union position, and it was against his own instincts and his own better judgment. Uh, he was killed in this attack, and his corps commander, William Hardy, stated upon learning of his death that where his division defended, no odds broke the line. Where it attacked, no number resisted its onslaught, save only once, and there is the grave of Claiborne. So clearly held in high regard by, you know, even his superiors, despite, despite his, uh, his controversy over, you know, suggesting that uh, the slaves be emancipated and brought in to fight for the Southern cause. Thomas Maher was to survive the war, and he entered American politics and was actually made governor of Montana after the war. Uh, he died in 1867 under suspicious circumstances. Uh, supposedly he was pushed off a steamboat by some of his political adversaries or there's other reports that it may have been a Confederate soldier. Uh, but either way, he, he drowned in the Missouri River in 1867. So both men are fondly remembered by their respective sides and Claiborne in particular. Uh, his service record, you know, the, the idea of his heroic death and, and just the desperate nature of the Southern cause, it elevated him to, to superstar status in the states of the South. And so there is the story of two Irishmen that were caught up in this war of other people. And both men were naturalized Americans by the time of the war, but it serves to illustrate the, the Irish willingness to get behind a cause they believed in or to, to get involved in a fight that they believed concerned them. And here again, Tommy Tiernan was right in saying that we are good at fighting other people's wars. And my suggestion for this week's uh, episode of the show is uh, the documentary uh, by Ken Burns, The Civil War. It's uh, an eight-part documentary about the American Civil War, and it's, it's, it's my favourite documentary. Uh, I just think it's so well put together. Uh, just the, the pacing, the, 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 the dialogue, the, the narration. 
it's uh, the pictures of the American Civil War. You know, it was the first uh, highly photographed uh, war uh, in history, and it's it's just a fantastic piece of of, of documentary filmmaking. Um, it's available on Netflix. Uh, I think it's available on YouTube as well. Like so, so definitely go check it out. It it brings you you know from the the build up to the war. You know that I suggested uh, or that I talked about earlier when I said that. You know, there was a, a lot of factors involved in the outbreak of the American Civil War and how the tension had been building for many years. And it, it brings you right through all the campaigns and all the major battles and and then finishes with uh, a look at how America uh, began reconstructing itself after the war. And uh, it's it's just fantastically made. Uh, there's some great, uh, you know, a lot of the characters are narrated by uh, fairly famous actors including uh, Morgan Freeman and Jeremy Irons take part in it so yeah Ken Burns's The Civil War is my suggestion for this week so that's it for another episode of Digging Those Ditches folks uh, hope you enjoyed it uh, I, I had good fun uh, especially Again, doing the American Civil War stuff. Uh, I think you've realized at this stage now that I do love talking about that sort of thing. Uh, but I promise that the next couple of episodes, anyway, I'm going to try and veer away from that if I can. Uh, and maybe I, uh, one of the ways at work, he was telling me that uh, maybe try and concentrate on some more prehistoric stuff. So, yeah, we might, might delve deeper into archaeology uh, over the next few weeks. Uh, prehistoric archaeology in particular. Uh, and we'll give the we'll give the military stuff a break for a while so yeah as i said that's that's the end of this week's show uh just want to mention one quick thing uh heritage week is coming up in august but there's also there's going to be an excavation uh, a community excavation uh at glendalock at the site of uh one of the one of the round towers that i talked about earlier and it's uh it's for adults uh and it runs from uh, Tuesday the 8th uh, to Friday the 19th. Uh, and there's also a day on Saturday the 12th of August uh, for younger people aged 13 to 17. If they're accompanied by a guardian, they can take part in this dig. And you don't need to have any prior knowledge of, of excavations or any sort of archaeological experience to take part. So if you want to find out more, uh, you can find it on the Glendalock Heritage Forum on Facebook. Or you can email uh, Forum at gmail.com. Uh, also, as usual, I'll just say, you know, if you have any suggestions or any questions for the podcast, uh, it's digging those ditches. There's no G at the end of digging. Uh, so it's digging those ditches at gmail.com. Uh, you can also find me on Facebook and on Instagram at digging those ditches. Uh, so yeah, don't be afraid to get in touch if you want to hear anything or just want to just want to ask some questions or, as I said, just to get in touch. Uh, and until next week, folks, just keep digging those ditches. <laughs> <laughs>